Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash the story Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Oh, should we sync you guys? Yep, we should. Okay, all right. Sorry, here we go. In three, three two, two, one. one. Story, Story Man. Story Man. That's for, that's for you, Aaron. <laughs> all right, now here we go. He's going to think we're an expert after our 90-some right? episodes. <laughs> we actually do it right for once. Uh, here we go. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Storyman Podcast. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Storyman Podcast, episode 145. I am Clay Morgan. And I'm J.R. Foresteros. And Matt Michelatis will be along shortly for our interview today with author and real living theologian, Thomas Ord. I'm excited about that interview. I got to hang out with Thomas in San Antonio, and it was super fun. San Antonio, huh? Yeah, so... uh, Buckle your nerd seatbelts, everyone. Uh, <laughs> I went to the Society of Biblical Literature and American Academy of Religion annual conference. It's basically like that's the professional organization for Bible scholars and religion scholars. And so I've wanted to go to it ever since I was in grad school because like that was everyone. All the professors went. All the, the grad students went. And all the cool kids were doing it at the yeah, as you can school. Tell. All the cool ones. And so, uh, so really, uh, I just was never able to go. It's always, there's only like five or six cities in the entire country that are big enough to host it. Mm. it it's like 19,000 nerds. Oh, wow. And I didn't realize yeah. it was that big. Your picture kind of pretty intimate. Kind of a big deal, Clay. Mm. Um, that's because I was hanging out with the, the creme de la creme. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. No, so it, it's crazy. And it was in San Antonio this year, which is a, a measly four hours from Dallas, which in Texas is basically next door. Were you so, driving? Uh, no, I rode down with our friend Tim Baslin, friend of the show Tim Baslin. Oh. He's going to be back on our uh, episode for Silence here in a few Timmy episodes. B. So yeah, I rode down with uh, another a fellow DTS professor and a couple of DTS students. And so all five of us went down together. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, so you can you can hear, dear listener, that... Now these days of me not living in the same abode as Jr., you know we have much more to catch up on by the time That's we right. visit <laughs> visit your cars and homes. So uh, yeah, it was interesting. Like I got to meet Pete Enns in person. We've had him on the show before, and he was really fun to hang out with. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, he, he and Tom actually did a presentation on academic freedom because really? both of them have lost jobs because of their viewpoints and beliefs. And so they were, they were exploring the tension between a confessional institution that has a particular, you know, statement of beliefs and academic freedom, you know, and how do you, how do you do those two things? Well, Timmy B uh, and Pete ends on the same panel or they both did sessions on no, the no, same no. topic. Tom Ord. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. Dude. Tom, our, our guest who's on this episode. Right. Right. Ends, right. Did, did. So uh, Pete gave a paper and then Tom responded, but it was all very cordial. 
And then as you'll hear in the interview, I, I attended a panel where four really great scholars critiqued Tom Ward's book, The Uncontrolling mm-hmm. Love of God, which is what we brought him on to talk about today. And I got to basically just sit there and witness like this really great scholarly dialogue about kind of cutting edge theology. Mm-hmm. So it was really, and I mean, I, I got to see N.T. Wright and I actually got to see Pete Enns and another New Testament scholar named Richard Hayes critique Wright's new book. Uh, and then Wright was there to, in his nice, polite British way, tell everyone they were wrong for critiquing his book. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was just, and I got to see a bunch of friends from grad school I hadn't seen in forever. I got to see my old uh, thesis advisor from grad school, my uh, Dr. Reeves, who we've had on, who is my professor in Bible college. Oh, yeah, was, we had Rodney there. Reeves on. So I got to see him. Uh, I got to meet my editor at IVP in person, and we got to talk through some of his thoughts on my book as I was waiting for edits to get back. So nice. that was super awesome. Yeah, it was just it was really fun. I mean, I met a t- I met an amazing scholar who does hip hop and theology who's up in Chicago, and he we're trying to get him lined up to come on for a, an episode on Luke Cage. Oh wow! Come on the okay. podcast. So yeah, I mean, it, it was just it was an incredible time. Now, did you book NT Wright for the Storyman yet? I did not. Uh, he asked if if he could come on, and I said, you know, we we're kind of booking out pretty far right now, so yeah. I'll have to get back to you. But okay, you know. okay, that's fair. Yeah. Um, also, he, oh, go ahead. I was just say he was really interested in coming on. Of course, that was like the first question out of his mouth when when I introduced myself to him. I'm surprised so, you even had time to focus on the sessions when people heard the story <laughs> men were represented there. <laughs> I got a lot of, huh, what's that? (laughs) Um, I like how you say cutting-edge theology. You would think that after a couple thousand years, we've pretty much circled the wagons on all this stuff, but turns out the church has some thinking to do still. There's still more words to say about God, interestingly enough. Yeah. How about you? I mean, you, uh, you got to go to sunny Florida, which isn't, it's not quite as, it's not quite as dramatic now that you live in Texas, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, it's been a crazy few weeks for me, and the, the the two moves in a month I don't recommend to anybody, but it's really nice to be getting settled in and getting caught up on work, and in the midst of that, I went to visit my sister Shannon in Clearwater. That's where I spent Christmas last year, Scientology Central, and um, it was a great time. No, it is not as dramatic to go to Florida now for a winter holiday as it was when I lived in Pittsburgh. But it's still pretty dang cool. We had a lot of fun, and we literally sat on the couch, watched football the entire day, and ate food, as as you're supposed to do. Finally, a day when Americans can watch football and overeat, as the onion said. <laughs> That's fantastic. We, By the time I got home from San Antonio, I was ready to just crash out. So we actually just stayed in the house and didn't leave all day. And we made enough food for about 30 people, but there were just three of us. It was me, my wife Amanda, and Demac. So uh, we okay. still have leftovers that we're working through. They're still delicious, but it's good. Hey, uh, I'm, I'm really excited to get to this interview, but do you think we should probably do our pop culture picks of the week first? Probably. Pow! Pow! All right, uh, I'm gonna go first if that's okay, because as you know, the the storyman is now sponsored by uh, Audible Podcast, and so uh, you know people Audible can... Podcast. 
Oh, sorry, Audible. What is it? Audible. <laughs> Audible.com. Audible.com. I'm just going to read. I'm just going to read the script. For you listeners of the Storyman podcast, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you an opportunity to check out their service. Uh, so the book that I'm going to recommend that you try for your 30-day trial is a new book that I just started. It's called Six of Crows. It's by Lee uh, Bardugo. And the sequel is actually already out. I think it's a two-book series, so you can start and finish it. But I just started the first book. It's been on a bunch of best-of fantasy lists. Yeah, this sounds like fantasy with a heavy element of magic. It is Ocean's Eleven set in a magical fantasy world. What? Yes. Oh, man, trying to reel me in. So I, I started the book blind. All I knew was that it was on a bunch of lists. People were raving about it. I didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. I just started reading it. And within a couple of chapters, the main character who runs like a thieves guild was mm-hmm. being recruited to like sneak into this other country and break into this impenetrable fortress and like s- steal a prisoner out. And basically he agrees to do it because it can't be done. Hmm. And he loves the the idea of the challenge. Mm-hmm. So I'm telling you, like I'm I'm early on in this book. I guess things could go horribly badly, but I'm loving it so far. Like it is definitely a book I I'm struggling not to just ditch the podcast right now and go read. <laughs> so now, did you say that it's the first one and there is a sequel? And it's our sequel's already out. So and that's called Crooked um, Kingdom. I'm looking here. That sounds right. Um, and and they're selling it as a two book series. So I'm assuming that. Um, I'm assuming that it's maybe just two books and out. I don't know how long the series is supposed to go. Like I said, I, I picked it. I intentionally didn't read anything about the book before I picked it up because I love uh, just kind of that experience of discovering. So, well, I just added it to my Audible wish list, which is a fun thing you can do if you're an Audible subscriber. And then when your credits come in every month and it's like really exciting, Boom. you can go and kind of look and shop and. It's real fun. So if you're if you're not an Audible subscriber, to download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash storymanpodcast. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash storymanpodcast for your free audiobook. Well, uh, that is very cool. I definitely am going to check that one out in the future. I just finished a book yesterday that I had been wanting to get to for a while called Creativity, Inc. by Ed Catmull. Catmull is one of the guys who started Pixar along with John Lasseter and Steve Jobs got it going. And uh, he had a dream that no one else really had as passionately as as he did in the 20th century. And that was to create the first fully uh, computer animated feature film. And people thought it was still just an impossibility by the 1970s when he was really driving towards it and working at Lucasfilms before he started Pixar. I read um, Pixar, the story of Pixar, a couple years ago and enjoyed it. But I, I will say this, the Ed Catmull, his way of thinking, this book is definitely driven towards managers. So I find it really useful, useful for my day job um, as well. But it also does tell some of the story about how those movies came to be and how they basically fostered and and navigate a culture of creativity specifically. And that's really interesting. So the movies that you love from Pixar like – it has heavy feedback from the people like Pete Docter, the director, um, and Andrew, whose last name is escaping me, who directed movies like Monsters, Inc., and you know John Lasseter from Toy Story and, and all of that. So Creativity, Inc., nonfiction, if you're into that thing, I highly recommend it. And I'm starting to think more and more that, I mean, Steve Jobs and, and Wozniak were right there, you know, pioneering change in the, in the century, but... Ed Catmull and John Lasseter, they sure have made their imprint on our society as well. 
Uh, you know, Clay, I can't help but uh, notice that this book is also on Audible. Uh, as a matter of fact, it is. And the reader, uh, by the way, you'll appreciate this. Oh, snap. I'm going to forget his name. Peter uh, Altshuler. I'm almost certain uh, – he, he does a lot of audiobooks, but I'm almost certain in uh, American Gods by Neil Gaiman, he plays Odin. Oh, nice. Okay, fantastic. So it's, a, so it's always fun to hear those voices cross back and forth from fiction and I, fiction. I have not read this book yet, and I hear literally nothing but effusive praise for it. Yep. So it's on my list. I want to get to it. I'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it so much. Sure did. So we got a couple of good book recommendations for you this week on the Papal, but now it's time for our fancy cutting-edge theology interview. We are fortunate today to have theologian Thomas J. Ord back on The Storyman. Uh, Tom, welcome back to the show. Thanks for being with us again. Hey, it's great to be talking with you guys again. So it has been, it's been right at about a year since we've had you on the show, and it's been right about a year since your book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, has been out. So uh, how, how has the last year been in terms of what you've been doing with this book? It has been amazing. I mean, I, I can't believe how well things have gone. Um, you know, when you write a book, you have these big dreams about how well it's going to do. And uh, of course, it rarely works out to your dreams. Uh, this particular book do, has done so many different things and has had such wide influence. Uh, I couldn't have dreamed of how well it's done, and so I'm super, super happy. Tom, can you can you give us an example? Like what what kind of uh, like where have you seen the book's influence growing? Well, you know, it's it's well, there's several indicators. One, of course, is that uh, even before the year was up, it was in its third printing which wow. is kind of cool. Mm. Uh, of course, it's a part of an academic press, so you know they don't exactly do large first printings for <laughs> academic books. But still, that's, that's pretty impressive. No, that's exciting. Yeah. And um, I have probably spoken, boy, at least 20 or 25 different places in the last year. Wow. Uh, universities, seminaries, churches, different groups. Um, and so there's been lots and lots of interest. And, and it's it's. I'm finding like three general kinds of people are attracted to the book. One person is basically the theology nerds, you know, the people who are studying theology JR. either on their own. Yeah, JR and whatever. <laughs> uh, you know, so seminaries, colleges, universities, they invite me to, to do the kind of the straightforward, hardcore theology. Then there's a group of people who are interested in a new way of thinking about God and the world. And oftentimes these people are um, dissatisfied are um, maybe even disenfranchised with the status quo. They're kind of on the edges and they're, they, they just don't find the usual fare, the usual explanations really work for them. And then this third group is maybe even the most fascinating. These are people who have endured incredible hardship, pain, suffering. They've been abused. I get notes about every other week now from someone who's been a victim of sexual abuse hmm. who writes me and says, you know, all my life I've thought that God either caused my sexual abuse or at least allowed it to happen. 
now, after reading your book, I don't have to blame God for being a bystander as if God could have prevented it. Uh, you know, your view says God can't prevent genuine evil. And so it's a whole lot easier for me to believe that God is perfectly, consistently loving and can't stop what happened to me than it was for me to think that God could have stopped it, but just chose not to. Wow. So those are, you know, obviously that makes me feel super good when someone has their view of God uh, changed in a helpful way. Tom, maybe could you give us a, a this is totally unfair to ask of anyone, let alone a, a theologian dealing with complicated issues. Let's say you're on an elevator with someone and you've got 30 floors. Let's say we'll be generous. It's, it's, a, it's a rest. Uh, And someone's like, Man, I'm having a rough time. Could you? What you just said sounds really compelling. Could you just give me the the quick version of where that comes from? What that means? Yeah. So my book addresses two key questions: Do random and chance events occur in the world, and are they really random and chance for God? And why doesn't God prevent the genuine evils of the world? And to the first question, I say, Yep. There are really random and chance events. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. They're even random and chance for God. God didn't pre-plan them. God didn't even foreknow with certainty they were going to occur. And to the second question, I say, God loves everyone and gives everyone and everything power to exist, including freedom for complex creatures, agency for less complex creatures, and just mere existence. And because God's love is self-giving and others empowering, God cannot prevent genuine evil that occurs in the world. Hmm. So follow-up question. Yeah, go ahead, Clay. Um, out of all of those 20 to 25 times you've spoken, how many times have you been called a heretic? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it definitely makes some people uncomfortable. Um, sure. You know, some people like they're actually most people are very intrigued by it and they want to hear more. Some people come up to me and say, you know, I've I've thought like this for a long time and you're the first person to actually put into words what I've been kind of intuiting or thinking for a long time. And then there's some people who say, you know, heretic. Um so what I try to do is I try to show how this particular view actually has uh, substantial biblical support, how many uh, theologians in the tradition have said something kind of close to this, but not gone quite as far as I do. Mm-hmm. And um, by the time I'm done, they usually they still might think I'm a heretic, but they at least think I'm a, a heretic with some biblical and, and traditional uh, support or moorings of some kind. It's like a it's smart, great. educated heretic. <laughs> <laughs> more dangerous. What, uh, <laughs> Tom, one more question just about the concept, and I think JR has some, uh, some things he wants to explore. But when you say uh, cannot uh, stop evil, is that is that – because of character or capacity or something else? Like what is preventing God from being able? Yeah, awesome question. So there are some people who think that God chooses not to prevent evil or won't prevent evil, but God could. And actually, even those people usually will say occasionally God will intervene to stop it. But most of the time, God's got kind of a hands-off policy. I call that view the voluntarily self-limiting God. God right. voluntarily chooses not to intervene. 
And then at the other side of, uh, of the spectrum are some people who think that God is limited by external forces, factors, or agents, you know, as if God would like to do something, but God is constrained in some way, you know, hands tied behind your back kind of a thing. My view is between those two. I say that God's nature is love, and love necessarily gives to others their existence, freedom, agency, however, depending on how complex they are. And and this is the key little philosophical phrase, God's loving nature precedes God's sovereign choice Mm. or God's sovereign Mm. power. So it's, it's saying that God is limited in what God can do, not by some voluntary self-limitation, not by some external limitation, but by God's own nature of love. I right. call it essential kenosis, or sometimes I'll call it involuntary self-limitation. That makes sense. So that that's like uh, essentially like we were before the show started, we were talking about our daughters. Uh, Tom, you, you have three daughters and I have three as well. And I can definitely think of situations where I might, I might theoretically be able to do certain things, uh, like feed my daughter's filth, let's say. But <laughs> I, I think you could absolutely say that I cannot do that. Not, not because I don't have the power to do it. I certainly have the authority and the ability, but my love for my kids would never, there's, there's not a scenario in which that makes sense. Is that is that kind of? I, I would say something similar, or I would say you're doing it wouldn't be a loving act. Now, now you can choose to love or not to love. In my view, God's nature is love, so God must love. So there's a ah, difference between you and God there. Um, I see. So, but because God generally is love speaking, is the exactly. idea. Yep. Got it. Yep. Got it. So, uh, Tom, when you talk about this in the book, and I just this will help some of the other theology nerds listening to the podcast. Like, this is an issue in in theology that we we talk about the so- sovereignty of God, which is essentially what is God's relationship to creation. And there are some, you know, you do seven in the book. Is that right? I should have reviewed that before. Seven we, models of providence. Yeah, of yeah. providence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, so broadly speaking, I think what what our what our, our listeners will be familiar with is there's like reformed camps, Armenian camps, uh, open and process camps. Can you sort of just briefly run through the spectrum there? Because be, and where I want to go with this question is that you you're claiming in your book that you're adding a new sort of category or a new way to understand. So can you sort of just lay out the the field, the theological field, but that you entered into, and then maybe also follow up with how yours was was a significantly new idea. Yeah, I'd love to do that. So uh, let's go left. No, let's go right to left. Right being uh, the first one is basically the Calvinist position. At least maybe I'll call it thoroughgoing Calvinism, and that's the idea that God controls everything, um, and not really. Very many people actually hold that view, but it's a view that oftentimes comes up in conversation. Second one next to it is is kind of generally a, a more an Arminian view, which is that God could control, God sometimes controls, but often gives free will and, and stays out of things, at least in an uncontrolling way. This is a God who, um, I call it uh, a God who 
occasionally intervenes, occasionally doesn't. You don't really know exactly what God's up to most of the time because um, God controls some things and not others. The third view is more of a the voluntary self-limitation view that I was mentioning earlier. And a lot of scholars, people like Jürgen Moltmann, for instance, has that position, uh, John Polkinghorne, a lot of, it's very common amongst the scholarly community. Um, the problem with that view, in my, in my estimation, is that if God could prevent evil, but chooses not to, then you start to wonder if God is consistently loving. Now, the, the differences between position two and position three that I've talked about so far are really a difference in degree and not kind. In other words, position two says, you know, God's intervening an awful lot, doing miracles here and there by controlling, but sometimes we're free too. Whereas the people in position three aren't really going to talk a whole lot about God intervening. It's got to be really rare, you know, maybe for the resurrection of Jesus or some spectacular miracle here or there. My position is the number four position, which I call essential kenosis. I also believe in miracles. I think God is active all the time, but I think God never controls others because God can't control others. Position number five or model number five is the idea that God is kind of like the glue of the universe. God never intervenes, but God is never really interactive either. You should never pray to this God because this God is basically just there making sure things continue to exist. Is, that like, a, is that like a deism model? Well, that's actually deism number six. Okay. Number five you know, basically God is in the universe making sure things happen as, as kind of the glue, like I said. But God, this God's not personal. This God is not relational. Okay. And so like a classic example of this view is a guy named Paul Tillich, a famous 20th century theologian. It's number six that's the deist God. You know, the God who creates things however long ago they get started and now God is, you know, watching us from a distance to use Bette Midler's line. <laughs> she's a she's a famous theologian as well. Yeah. For those yeah. <laughs> and then the the number seven position is not really a position, but I put it on the the, the spectrum anyway. It's basically the mysterious God. It's the it's the apophatic God of someone like Jacques Derrida, or maybe Karl Barth's in the early period. His God was apophatic on steroids. Um, it's sometimes a position people go to when they have trouble figuring things out, but I put it on the spectrum to, uh, acknowledge that some people just say, God's it's all a mystery. And, you know, who are we to know what we have finite minds and, uh, God is beyond our comprehension to know anything about. Hmm. Tom, I wonder, um, you have this chapter on miracles. How how do supernatural acts like that fit into your framework? Yeah, you know, that miracles chapter was really an add-on. Uh, when I had proposed the book to the publisher, it was supposed to end at chapter 7, my, you know, essential kenosis, the solution to everything. Um, but in the middle of the chapter, I just said, I just know there's lots of people who are going to ask the miracles question. And so I need to write a whole chapter on that subject. Uh, basically, can God do miracles if God never controls? And my answer is yes. Um, and strangely enough, uh, I think there's lots of biblical support for this view. 
if you take into account the many stories that talk about, actually all the stories as far as I can tell, that talk about some kind of creaturely contribution to the event occurring. Sometimes in, in the, the uh, healing stories, for instance, with Jesus, Jesus often talks about the faith of the persons involved, either the person who's healed or others in the vicinity. And in fact, you know, when Jesus goes to his hometown, the uh, text says that he can't do miracles because they don't have faith, which suggests that there's some cooperative capacity involved there. Now, I don't make the claim that people who aren't healed is because they just don't believe hard enough. They don't have enough faith. But I, I think there's a principle involved here, and that is that creatures play some role in what happens in the world, including the miracles. So I think miracles are good, unusual acts that involve God's special action in relation to creation, but never controlling action. And uh, it's very easy for me to account for the healing miracles in Scripture using that model. It's a little more difficult to account for the what we call the nature miracles, you know, parting the Red Sea, those sorts of things. I propose some ways that uh, we can think about God at work at the quantum level and uh, using chaos theory and, and physics and things. But um, I have to admit that those are less easy to conceptualize than the uh, more common healing miracles we find in the Bible. Uh, w- one of the one of the things that I'm I'm fascinated by, and 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 it's particularly that that there, this this book seems to strike a special chord with victims of sexual violence. Yeah, uh, is the way you talk about uh, even the virgin birth, right? Which right. is that uh, you know a like that God literally asks for consent exactly you know from mary uh without overriding her i just thought that was i don't know i guess even just for for anyone any christian who's looking for a way to talk about an issue that's super important in our cultural conversation right now with some really serious biblical background like your framework really i I just it made it made the enunciation like a really powerful text to to teach and talk about consent because even god does this Exactly. Yeah. What does Mary say to re- in response? Be it unto me. You know, there's some cooperation going there. And of course, that raises all kinds of really interesting questions like, you know, what if she said no way? <laughs> or, uh, you know, might the incarnation have come in another form and someone else cooperated? I mean, that, those present some really interesting questions. But at the heart of it is the notion that God's love always seeks and invites cooperation and never controls others. So one of the reasons I was excited to have you back on the show is uh, we just we just got to hang out at the uh, Society of Biblical Literature conference down in San Antonio, and I basically stalked you around to all of your panels. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> uh, but what, the one that I was the most fascinated by was the one that was specifically on this book, and you had four serious Bible scholars who critiqued you and critiqued your book. And it was, I guess here's, let me just, let me just throw this out. And I don't, I don't mean it to sound defensive. I hope it, I hope it sounds, I hope it sounds encouraging. Like I think for me and maybe for a lot of our listeners, when we think about theologians, it's all dead people, right? It's like Calvin, Wesley, Augustine, like all, you know, and we don't think about theology as something that's continuing to be done in the here and now. 
And you, but this, like you, I guess for me getting to sit through that panel, it, it helped me realize like there is still serious theological work that's going on like today, right now. And this book is a, a, a contribution to the ongoing theological conversation. Like it's, it's not just reflection on stuff that everyone else has already said, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so I was I was really curious if you would be willing to talk about what it was like to write a theological text that you know is advancing theological conversation and by the very act of releasing it into the world, like you know that it's going to get criticism, probably both like healthy, helpful, good criticism, and then also as Clay was alluding to earlier, like pretty ugly, unhelpful, <laughs> unkind criticism. So like, like how do you, how did you prepare yourself for that? Yeah. Yeah. That's a great question. I mean, uh, theology comes in a lot of different forms. And the one that you started off describing is what many people call historical theology. You know, it's, it's looking at what the people in the past have said and um, mining those writings for great ideas and resources and understanding God and reality. I think there's a place for that. It's not the particular approach to theology that I find most helpful. I call myself a theological entrepreneur. And by that, I mean that I think the big questions in life still need to be answered. And there's lots of questions that don't have satisfactory answers at the moment. I'm in the business of trying to search for satisfactory answers or what I call plausible answers to the big questions. I know in doing that, I'm going to be open to criticism. And, um, and I don't know everything and I'm wrong sometimes. And so, um, I want to be learning from others and listening to their criticisms carefully. Sometimes people say things to me that I say, Oh man, that's a great idea. I'm going to incorporate that. And in what I write next, uh, a lot of times people say things asking questions and I've already thought of what their worry is. And I, you know, I've got an answer to it. Many of the things, in fact, probably all of the things that you heard, at the uh, last meeting, JR, I'd actually thought of before, maybe there might be a couple of exceptions, but the vast majority of the questions or criticisms were one that I've already thought of and, and been wrestling with and, and found at least partial answers, if not satisfactory answers to me at least. But um, that process makes me a better thinker. It makes me a better, uh, makes me love God with my mind more deeply and so I try to take that criticism as a way to grow, as a way to improve, to deepen. Um, I know sometimes people give me criticism in unhealthy ways. Um, you know, people are afraid. And <laughs> when you're talking about God, you're talking about the kind of subject that people care most about. So their fears are going to be the, mo the deepest of all. And so I try to keep that in mind when people say things that I think are less than charitable. Um, and most of the time, if I respond in love and graciousness and gentleness and kindness, um, they will then respond to me and uh, we can have a more productive conversation. But I don't have things all figured out and I'm always learning. So I'm always open to criticism. 
let me see if I can ask this question in a way that, that makes sense. But it, tied up in this, in the questions you receive, in the conversations you've been having, and in maybe the criticism you've heard, um, we we all who care about spiritual things or who have a faith in God, we have a theology, even if we never even think to apply the word theology or worldview to what we believe. So it might even come in something as folksy as, you know, platitudes like God is good all the time or God said it, I believe it, that settles it. You know, good and bad kind of. Or uh, everything uh, happens for a reason. Exactly. God doesn't give us anything more than we can handle. Godliness. <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this kind of proverbial, um, you know, uh, folksy uh, theology. So I'm wondering then, in the conversations that you've had, is there one of those that you could kind of pull out of the stream um, for the listener who really doesn't think uh, – they're, they're not the theology nerd at all, but they're in that second category that they want to understand uh, who God is maybe a little bit more. And, and maybe one of the prevailing kind of ideas that's out there that you think is maybe even easily debunked that has um, impacted the, the most common thought. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I think I've got one for you. Okay. God is in control. Okay. I think that's the wrong way to think. I think if you think God is in control, then you have to think that all the things that are evil in the world are somehow either caused or allowed by God. Mm -hmm. I don't think people ought to say God is in control. And in fact, most people, if you begin to ask them more carefully, most people think they have some kind of free will. Most people, at least Christians, will admit that they've sinned in the past, if not in the present. And if you're sinning, that means you're doing something other than what God wants. But if God's in control, then you're going against what God thinks is right. And so, therefore, uh, God can't be totally in control if you're freely choosing sin. And this then, in my view, should be expanded to all areas of life, even at the uh, molecular level, the inanimate matter. In my view, God's not in control in any part of reality, but God is present to, active in, influencing all of reality. In fact, I like to use the phrase almighty. You know, it's the one that biblical translators typically use when translating the Hebrew and Greek, especially the Hebrew. And uh, by almighty, I mean God is mightier than all others. God exerts might upon all others. And God's the source of might for all others, but God never controls any others. Hmm. So God can be almighty in all those senses without being in control, to use that common phrase. So, so we've handled the problem of evil by coming up with a scarier thought that God is not in control. <laughs> <laughs> well, it might be scary for some right, people, but... Right. Think about those people who send me notes who've been sexually abused. Yep. It's a lot more comforting to know that God is not in control. God didn't stand by and fail to intervene when God could have and allowed those things to happen. To them, it's a comforting thought to think that God is not in control but mm -hmm. still loves. Well, uh, so, you know, after the election, there were a variety of feelings and opinions in the United States. I don't know if you guys noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> what world do you live in? <laughs> One of the things I saw, and I really, oh, it, it really rubbed me the wrong way, would be people on either side, 
on both sides, some people in mourning, some people in victory, saying, well, don't forget God's on his throne. And it, it's meant to be this, I think, comforting thing. Uh, some people were using it as like a guilt-inducing thing, I think. Uh, and it was never with any context. It was just kind of a drive-by comment, you know, something people would say. Um, I, I think it rubbed me the wrong way because it felt like what was being said is everything's going to be okay. Like, God is on his throne. God's in control. Everything's going to be okay. But my, you know, looking at life, I I guess I don't always see that, that everything's okay. Right. And so that's one of the questions, like, I, I definitely see where some people would hear everything you're saying and go, oh my gosh, this makes sense. I've experienced evil. And you're saying God is not the perpetrator of that. Right. Uh, but what does it do for us as we look to the future, if we're afraid of evil and of terror and horrible things in life. What does, what does your view tell us about God in the midst of that kind of fear of evil? That's a, that's a great question. I mean, my view says that God is always with us, always acting, always calling us to work with God to establish the kingdom of God on earth or to make the world a better place to use a more common phrase. Mm -hmm. Um, but it doesn't say that God will force any particular action or end. Now, to some people, that sounds alarming because as bad as things may be in the present, they're holding out hope that God's going to come back sometime, kick some butt, and we're going to walk out of here as winners. But the problem with that view is that if God's got the capacity to kick some butt, God sure should be kicking butt a whole lot more often. Hmm. I mean, let's say you're someone who wanted someone other than Donald Trump to be the president. Mm-hmm. If God really cares about America, why didn't God kick some butt and guarantee that someone other than Donald Trump be the president? Well, a couple explanations. One might be God doesn't really care. I don't want to go that route. I think God does care. God does love. Another might be, well, God could have prevented that from happening, but it's part of some God's overall master plan. But if you go that route, then you have to say things like the Holocaust are a part of God's overall plan. Every single rape that's ever occurred is a part of this plan. I mean, it gets really ugly really fast. Mm -hmm. So I find the most comfort and actually the most hope in believing that God's steadfast love never gives up calling us and all creation to redemption. That's no guarantee that we'll respond to that call. But God will never give up. God's relentless in God's action in the world, calling us to cooperate, always acting, always loving, all the time. Um, we are about out of time. I'm wondering, Tom, could you share maybe what has been the most helpful criticism or critique, I guess I get, I want to use the word critique. I want like the most, the most helpful critique you've received and, and actually let me, let me back up a little bit. So one of the things you said at SBL that I was fascinated by was how instead of going to work immediately on your next book, you've decided to really invest your energies in this book. So you've been doing Facebook live broadcasts and conversations, uh, book discussion groups, publishing, continuing work on your blog. Uh, what, like maybe talk about why you made that decision and then how, what critiques you've received that have really helped you kind of look towards the next step 
cool. I can do that. So I, I look forward actually to hearing critiques or criticism of my book. Evaluation maybe is a better word uh, because, um, as I said, I don't think I've got things all figured out and I'm always learning. I'm always tinkering. I'm always fiddling with my ideas. And um, fortunately, most of uh, the, the critiques that I've heard are not critiques that really, in my mind, undermine the main point of my book. But probably the strongest one, and it's one I think we were just kind of touching on a little bit ago, is the question of the end, or what Christian theologians often call eschatology. You know, it's fine and dandy if God doesn't control right here and right now, but uh, boy, we really want a guaranteed victory at the end of history. We want to somehow know that despite all the crap that we go through, God will be victorious, and that's a guarantee. Well, my view, which says God doesn't control, doesn't provide that kind of guarantee. The kind of guarantee I provide is that God never gives up in this life and the next. God always seeks to save the lost. And uh, so part of what the, the, the critique that I find the most um, provocative for me is, Tom, how can you offer us uh, eschatology that gives us real hope without having a God who controls. And I think I've got some proposals for that. In fact, I've, I've done a little bit of that already in, in a previous book. But in one of my next books, I'm going to address that t- uh, topic more uh, specifically and to a deeper level. Oh, I forgot your second question. What was your second one? Uh, No, just in general, like, I think it's a fascinating decision to focus. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we spliced that out and put this in. (laughs) (laughs) We we try not to control the conversation like that. I think we're just going to leave it. (laughs) (laughs) I'll call it influence, not control. How's that? Okay. Okay. Good. Um, I've, I've taken quite a bit of time on this particular book to, um, instead of jumping right into writing my next book, I've taken some time after this book for, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is mostly has to do with marketing, um, in, in the, uh, world of publishing, there are fewer and fewer publishing dollars that go toward marketing and, um, Publishers rely more upon um, those who write books to do the their own marketing, and so I, you know, I felt like I needed to do that. But the more important reason is that I really thought the ideas in this book were important and could be beneficial. They could help people think about God and, and life as we know it. And if I went immediately to start writing another book, it might be kind of fun for me you know, to explore new ideas, but I would miss the opportunity to be helpful to people, to expose people to these ideas. Um, And as I've already said, many people, not everybody, but many people are finding them helpful. And so it's been, you know, really gratifying to take the extra time to, um, you know, talk to people like you guys and give lectures and go to campuses and churches and and generally try to get these ideas out there so more and more people can be uh, exposed to them. 
That's awesome. Uh, so before we go, Tom, tell us where we can find all of your stuff on the internet. Cool. Uh, obviously, you can buy the book on uh, Amazon.com or InterVarsity Press. Um, but I also have a website at thomasjord.com. Um, lots of stuff on there, including uh, my blogs and photos and links to all kinds of things. In fact, oh, we got to make sure I mention this. Right now, I have a uh, giveaway going on. The giveaway is uh, an autographed copy of John Cobb's 1966 book, A Christian Natural Theology. It's the first edition. John signed it, and I'm adding to that a copy of my book, The Uncontrolling Love of God, also signed. And it's a cool giveaway because basically all you have to do is go to my website, sign up on the newsletter, and then you're entered into this drawing. But what's neat is that it's set up so that if you enter in your your uh, email address, it'll give you an opportunity to suggest the emails of uh, other people. And for every person you suggest uh, who then confirms their email, uh, you increase your chances of winning by three. So like it's a really cool kind of a thing. So I, 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 I encourage you guys to sign up and suggest the uh, other people to uh, win these two books that are autographed. That's fantastic. Uh, we'll put links to all that in the show notes at storyman.us, facebook.com slash the storyman. And also, uh, Tom, your book is also up for IVP's uh, Reader's oh, yeah. Choice Award. Yeah, yeah. And that's actually uh, something that people vote on. So uh, those of you who've had a chance to uh, read the book, uh, I'd love for you to go to uh, InterVarsity Press Reader's Choice Award book contest or something like that. I, I can't remember the exact title, but if you put the link up, I would really love for you to vote for my book. Yeah, I've already voted for it. So, thank you. Thank uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we'll put links to all those in the show notes at storyman.com and Facebook – or storyman.us, excuse me, and facebook.com slash the storyman. Tom, thanks again for being back on the show. It's been great to catch up and to just hear more about the work that you're doing. Hey, thanks for the invitation, and it's good to talk with you guys. All right, we'll be back next week with another great episode. And we have something big brewing for uh, this movie, Silence, that's coming out. Hopefully you've heard about it. If not, look it up and thank us later. Uh, but just get ready for that. If you haven't read the book Silence uh, by Endo, then you definitely should. Uh, it's a new Martin Scorsese movie coming out uh, in December. So be on the lookout for that as well. As always, thanks for listening. And until next time, be well. Life is a story. there's a man rather sometimes there's some men and I'm talking about the story men here and I know what you're thinking those are some tall fellers I don't know if that's three stories separately or three combined well we're missing the point sometimes there's some men and you want to know what these hombres are about well I won't say they're heroes they're just the men who are right for their time and place these men, uh, shoot, lost my place. Well, I've probably introduced them enough. 
So just relax for a spell and bend your ear their way. 